Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 58. We have an excellent show for you, as always. Gregory LaSalle is here. Um, we publish him twice over the years, and um, a formal poet. Looking forward to talking to him in just a minute. But before we begin, I should say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization, so do not be confused. There's only one real rattle. Um, now, today is what I call Pumpkin Day, um, just personally. It is a day where um, everybody's love for me turns back into a pumpkin from a beautiful carriage because today is the day that we announce the winners of the this year's Rattle Poetry Prize, and um, all the people who are pretending to like me um, send me angry emails. But I'm really excited about this year, the Rattle Poetry Prize winners. You know, for a long time, I, I have this problem that I keep talking about, where um, a longer narrative poem kind of wins, and then, um, so people submit these longer narrative poems, and um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if everybody sends longer narrative poems that are sort of emotionally driven, and like a page and a half long, um, then we end up publishing the winner being a poem like that, and then people send them more. So this year, we have a Pantoum is the winner. Um, Allison Townsend was the winner this year with her Pantoum. Um, what was it called? It was called Pantoum from the Window of the Room Where I Write. And Allison Townsend, we published her a couple times in the past, not, not pretty recently, though. And I thought for our warm-up poem today, um, in honor of Allison, congratulations to her, I thought I would read a poem of hers from Rattle Number, what was it? It was 28. So she was a finalist uh, 13 years ago. And she submits pretty much every year. And uh, after 13 years, now she's the winner and not just a finalist. But here she is. This is uh, Alison Townsend. I'm going to have to read it myself. So um, buckle in. It's a, it's a longer poem. Hopefully I don't botch it too bad. But uh, here you go. This is Alison Townsend's Spin from Rattle number 28. Spin. I don't remember if the bottle was a Coke or a Fresca. Just that the glass was cool against our hands and the warm, empty tool shed where we'd gathered after swimming all afternoon at Debbie Worthman's eighth-grade pool party, everyone's skin damp and blue in the shadows, the boys' chests bare, the other girls wearing cute peekaboo cover-ups that matched their de demure suits, and me with a frayed blue shirt of my father's, its tails tied fetchingly around my first bikini, a homemade job I'd stitched up in pink and red paisley from a simplicity pattern, the bottom half barely on because I'd run out of elastic. I don't know what Debbie's parents thought when we slipped away leaving the pool, or whose idea it was as we trudged up the hill between her father's prize-winning roses, their scent filling the air like a primitive attire, their metal name tags chinking in the breeze. That seemed to have come up from nowhere, pushing at us with invisible hands as we locked ourselves inside the half-dark that smelled of wood chips and compost, our eyes dilating like cats' faces suddenly pale beneath copper-toned tans. I wasn't sure why I'd been invited to this party, or why I'd come, except that he was here, the boy we'd pushed or the boy who'd pushed me into the pool more times than any other girl, and who, when the guys raided the girls during a lull in Mr. Tallarico's class music experience, had given me a nine, Beethoven's booming, making me feel almost good enough, almost deserving of his attention. Which, when it fell on me, when our eyes caught and locked, 
threw out a tinsel silk line that hooked my breath and heart as easily as he made jump shots at games, the ball teetering on the orange rim, then bingo, in. While the sweaty mascot pranced in the moth-eaten tiger suit, the cheerleaders scissored their perfect legs, and I'd held my breath, hoping he'd look my way, his hand dribbling the ball as if he was touching my body. All that, pressurized, and the push down inside as someone twirled the bottle and it spun, blurring as we held our breath like fourteen-year-old yogis, and thank God it pointed at someone else. From whom I had to look away as their lips met, my stepmother's injunctions, don't stare, don't cross your legs at the ankles, loud in my head. Though I would have liked pointers, one dry, chased peck the year before from Bruce Coley had all, all I had to go on. But I gazed down until the bottle whirled toward me, its opening like the little O of surprise that undid a slipknot inside my body, something not quite desire, but what I'd soon call anticipation, singing along with Carly Simon's song, a fist in my solar plexus opening and closing like a luna moth's wings. As he moved across the circle and tilted my face up, his palm cupped beneath the curve of my cheek, then fastened his silky, double-mint-scented mouth over mine, everything in the room disappearing in the plush wriggle of his tongue, the slight thrust of his cock stirring beneath cut-off jeans, and my tongue moving back, as if I had been born knowing this, as if... We were back in the pool, his hand water on my skin, the rest of the kids gone, the inside of my eyelids spangled with paisley swirls. As I leaned further and further into this kiss that would sustain me all summer, practicing for the next one with my pillow or my fleshy part of my palm, enlisting for her for life to the lure of the male's hard, angular body, the taste of mint everywhere like clean, green rain. That was from Rattle number 28. Um, Allison Townsend was a finalist for um, the Rattle Poetry Prize back then, 13 years ago. This year, she is the winner, as I mentioned, for um, Pantoom from the Window of the Room Where I Write. Very different poem from that. So um, I see 13 years of evolution in Allison Townsend there. But a wonderful poet, and congratulations to her on the big prize this year. Now, um, today's guest on the Rattlecast, as everybody comes in, let me make sure that everything's working. Um, let's see, we got viewers. Yeah, we do. Hey, Kathy Gibbons and Stephanie Kitty Carpenter. Hello to you. Um, let's see, who else we have? We have on, over on YouTube, we got people. Good. Daniel Mask is here. Hi, y'all. Um, <laughs> Vicky Miko, Sally D. Good to see everybody. Okay, so we got some people. Looks like we're live and working. Looks like, like Twitter is working, too. So, um... As I mentioned, today's guest is Greg LaSalle. We've had two poems published by Gregory um, recently. Um, and it is by her. Gregory LaSalle has won four Hopwood Awards in the Academy of American Poets Prize at the University of Michigan, where he earned an MFA. He has won the uh, William Van Wert Fiction Award from Hidden River Arts in the Laurie and Hemingway Short Story Competition for his short fiction and the Ruby Lloyd Apsey Award for playwriting. He's also won the Robert Frost Award from the Robert Frost Foundation, the Rita Dove Prize at Salem College, multiple awards from the Poets Society of Michigan, um, their annual competitions, and he's appeared all over the place. Um, his chapbooks include Phantom Limb, Our Parents Dancing, The Whole of Him Collected, which we published a poem from that book, um, About the House, um, In Ordinary Time, and most recently this poem here, which I will put on screen, uh, The Very Rich Hours. 
which is his newest book. Uh, this is Greg Lassell. And uh, yeah, do you want to start with a poem just to kick off um, the feel of, sure. of what you do? Um, sure. I've got the very rich hours here, and I'm going to look at the, the very first page of poetry, which is page 11. Uh, this is called Learning to Shave. And it's about being a little boy in my grandparents' house. I had a very close relationship with my maternal grandparents. And uh, one of the things I used to do on weekends is sit on the bathroom counter as my, my grandfather shaved. I would watch him shave. It was just sort of our routine in the morning. And he had a shaving mug, which is on my desk now. It's my pencil holder. And he would whip up lather, and uh, there was this whole sort of magical summoning thing to using shaving soap. But uh, this is called learning to shave, right? Drawing water into lather with his brush, the alchemist spins the handle with his wrist. I watch the foaming bubbles gather within the filling porcelain mug. I'd inherit that same gesture stirring from my wrist the water into foam, the round cake sunk beneath the suds. I'd watch him shaving Sunday mornings as a child, sitting on the sink, beguiled by ritual, anticipating first the foaming mug and lathered face, the razor, then the scraping off of stubble. Later, aping him, I learned to shave. I gather this is how all boys behave at first, bowing to the mirror as I remembered my grandfather did, as did his own, half awed and half embarrassed. This is how we go about it, mimicry across the generations. See my hands? I watch and see his now. And it was learning to shave. Uh, the, the very opening poem from uh, Greg Lassell's newest book, The Very Rich Hours, um, and this book, Greg, is about um, mostly your grandfather. Um, yes. What can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him, and, and why um, you know what compelled you to write a whole book about it? And, and really, I think the uh, whole it, of them collected, it, which we published a poem from. It was a. That's it's a, a sonnet. I think a royal crown of sonnets. Is that right? Yeah, Corona sequence. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Back, and so that was a chapbook. Corona was uh, had a different meaning, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I wrote consistently. Uh, he died in nine, or, uh, 2006 at the age of 90. Uh, he had lived a long time. And uh, uh, my first reaction was just how grateful I had been to have him in my life for a long time because we had had a very close relationship. Uh, my mother is one of four girls. And so I'm the first grandchild, and here I am. right? And he had a boy. So that, uh, that I think, was the, the start of things. But uh, uh, he gave me a lot of things. It was his example, his love of the arts, for instance, that uh, kindled my own. And some of my fondest memories, which are the text of the book, uh, involve him reading poetry to me. The, the ballads you hear in childhood, like The Highwayman's Daughter or uh, Leonore by Poe. And so that was, it was a very close friendship, and it persisted throughout our lives. We, uh, we attended the symphony together. Um, after my grandmother died, I was the, the person around often. Um, I was frequently at the house on weekends during the school year and for weeks at a time in summer. And uh, basically, I grew up around that household. 
So the summer after he died, I began to put things together and ask, what are the most significant memories? What are the most picturesque or gripping or vital? And what are the forms that, uh, that they should take? And I began listing them and drafting them. And quite a lot of the book was written between uh, uh, 2006 and 2009 in big batches of poems. Uh, the chapbook, uh, the Corona sequence, uh, the whole of him collected, was written in, I think, 10 days. I sat down and wrote a, a sonnet and a fraction every day and then drafted another one, and the next morning came back and revised and finished and drafted another, uh, linking them together as they went. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, major, a major phase of work, I guess. If you talk about a period in which one subject occupies a writer, uh, this was the situation. This is what I did. And, uh, from that came a chat book and uh, uh, the full-length collection, which is, just came out in October, and uh, and a handful of other things that crop up here and there. Uh, when, when was your grandfather born? Because it, it does, reading the book reminds me of my own grandfather, and um, I only had one that I had any relationship with, but he, you know, taught me to play chess, and um, he was a sort of quiet, you know, silent type, but born in, you know, those 1915, so he grew up through the World War Funny and the Great Depression <laughs> and things like that, yeah. That's exactly it, 1915, oh, yeah. December of 19. And uh, that image of the two of you over a chessboard is very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a doctor, and he'd read his medical journals in the evening, and I'd curl up on the couch in the den across the room from him, and we got into the habit of picking a particular work. Uh, as a teenager, had I ever really listened to Beethoven's Fifth, right? And so we'd put it on, and we'd discuss it as we were both working quote unquote throughout the evening that was a uh, that was a very common thing for us it's funny that you mentioned uh, beethoven already and in the poem that we read mentioned beethoven and tonight's prompt is uh, to remind people is to write a poem about a, a classical piece of classical music so if you haven't sent that in yet please do send it to open mic at rattle.com but it's weird how these coincidences um keep popping up um and we're in the right place at the right yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think that we're living in a, in a holographic simula simulation, but uh, that's a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> do you want to read another poem um, sure. from the book? Sure. Let me see. Um, what are the ones I've set aside here? Uh, let me talk about his experience. Uh, one of the, the, the treats of that household was that my mother and my aunts had moved out and there were a lot of fun things left behind. And so I grew up with a, a household full of, of time past in a lot of ways. But he had a box that contained the shells, seashells, that he brought back from the Philippines. He was stationed in the Philippines in World War II and uh, he didn't see any combat action. He was you know, a medical officer attached to a gunnery uh, outfit, but, and that gave him a lot of time to go snorkeling. So he had, he had this box of shells, and we would look at these, and it was somewhere in old tobacco tins, somewhere in old army socks. You know, even the, the way they were packed, they had been packed away you know, sometime in 1946 or so, and they were pretty much that way uh, throughout my childhood. But this is called Shelling in the Philippines, World War II. 
Um, and it's about us examining the, the shells. The spoils of war, or at least some of them, are wrapped in khaki socks and paper sacks gone greasy soft, and one tobacco tin, of course he never smoked, how did that get in? Some other soldier cast off on a beach from which he snorkeled. That was war to him, short on heroics, long on medicine, long in the afternoons and short on ills exotic, catastrophic, or extreme. He'd set out once the morning's needs were filled. Elastic bandages and quinine pills gave way to sunlit shadows and the gleam of plundered shells. Anemones dark quills as thin as fine cigars. The queen conch frilled along her lip and crowned above. Cat's eyes dull, some buffed with jeweler's rouge, some dull with frosted pupils, booty of his dives in Filipino waters. Other lives were tenanted inside those turban shells that rattled in our fingers. Creatures live and hidden, curling shelves contrived for underwater habitation. Now, not 40 years gone since, he takes them out, unfolds the rags they swaddle in, and how he harvested this sunken treasure, how he shipped them back, secreted in his kit, and disembarked at last in New Orleans, he stowed them on the transport train, recounts. As I count shells and beg for one or two, the epic of his wartime past. Each day a letter home to Faye included clues to where he was. Each day's tattoo of offshore guns discharging practice rounds above the blue Pacific. These things, too, survive inside the shell's pearlescent blue interiors, like whispers down a hall around a turn. The abalone's gray and vibrant moire satin lining palls the memory. Shells echo lives, recall the two days train ride northward by northeast, recall the stations and the cab, recall the beach they left behind them after all. All epics are about our coming home. All treasures are composed of what survives to be retold again. All journeys, lone or in the company of others, known itineraries, oceans decades wide between, eventually all we own, become at last the shell we call our home. I feel that that was... Um... Shelling in yeah, the Philippines. Shelling in the Philippines, World War II, uh, from right. Greg Lassell's newest book. Um, so, Greg, I'm wondering, how um, how open was your, your grandfather? I'm wondering, as I was reading the book, I was sort of imagining him being my grandfather. I couldn't help it. And my grandfather, mm -hmm. growing through that, through the Great Depression, through World War II, was such a silent type, uh, such a kind of a mystery. Is that part of the book that, that you sort of were trying to piece together? the details of his consciousness, do you think? or um... Well, some of it, yes. But to be honest with you, we talked about everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, the older people in my family are sometimes surprised at what I must have learned as a child. <laughs> because I'll, I'll volunteer something and say, you know, my, they, my, neither of my grandparents were very guarded around me. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was the kid in the household and I, I experienced the adults. <laughs> in, in, in a, it wasn't a parental relationship. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't. Uh, I was just sort of, how do I say it? Um, 
I mean, there are things they, they wouldn't say. I could say that. But if I asked, I, I got an answer. There was, there was no question. Uh, and this extended until I was 43, too. So, you know, there was a lot of talking time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my grandfather died when I was uh, probably 20, I guess. So, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that generation, though. Like, they face so many crises. And in a similar way, I feel like we're facing crises today. So I think maybe, like, getting in touch with those people who lived through actual difficult times. Um, you know, like, we sort of have the... I feel like what we're going through is the crisis of, like, bureaucracy or something. Or, or just not, like, investing in in the future at all. Um, <laughs> and, um, and and sort of the chickens are coming home to roost. So we have a lot that we're going to be be fighting through for a long time. Um, do you think that's part of it? That, that, that um, you know, your grandfather like lived through all these experiences and, and sort of stayed strong through them and, and is an example for, for how to live your life now? Well, there are certain things about it. Certainly there, there is just how a gentleman behaves, right? Put that in capital letters, how a gentleman behaves. Uh, and he was a great example for me. Uh, and you know that I'm a high school teacher. And one of my ongoing observations is we don't have real adults much anymore. We don't seem, we seem to have lost that dignified reserve that uh, um, our grandparents had, uh, the tolerance, the uh, the acceptance of others as other figures in a landscape. Uh, you know, we live in an angry time, but we also behave, I think, socially in ways that are, uh, I don't want to say less mature, but less less cultured, mm-hmm. less dignified, less, less civic mm-hmm. or civil, in that sense of the word civil, right? Uh, so I think that generation, remember, too, he raised a family during the 50s. My mother was born in 1939, and uh, her youngest sibling was born in 1953. So, you know, that was that was the great age of suburban family life, right? I mean, everybody who's ever read the Dick and Jane books right, knows, knows what the template for that was meant to be. And uh, I think there was a sense of what an adult should do and say and no matter what you felt, how you should behave in in relation to it with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will, I will, you know, freely say that I don't feel like we're as mature as we used to be. I agree. You know, I, I think I you know if you hesitate to say that, but um, I don't. I think um, like unless you face challenges, you don't have to mature, and so you don't. I think that's a problem that um, a lot of us, you know, life has been so good for so many decades without any like that's true. You know, major problems that. Um, that that now that we face some major problems this year, it feels like the whole world is collapsing. When really problems, that's true. Like I always think of, um, you know, reading um, about the Mongol hordes coming. You know, I imagine I have a view out the office window here, and I imagine <laughs> like living in ancient Rome or something, right. and the fires from the raised villages being in the distance. And like like I think I got it bad now because I'm having some pro- plumbing problems in my house. You know, <laughs> and that is a far cry yeah, you from see smoke in your area. Um, it is, yeah, it is smoky. Um, we have a fire about five miles that way behind me. Um, now I am all the way across the country, mm-hmm. south of Detroit, and we are noticing that the sun is getting hazy and orange yeah. at morning and at night. 
we're seeing the smoke. They're reporting the smoke as far as Montreal. Yeah, and I think I'm, it's a perfect on the Detroit River. Yeah, you know, I think it's Canada's. a perfect example of sort of the deterioration of of um, civic culture or something like that. Like, there's no, um, you know, people talk about it being global warming, uh, which is part of the problem, but the main problem is forest management and the fact that we have we've been doing these controlled burns, which just puts out the consequences to the future, mm-hmm. you know, to suppress fires now, and um, and people don't like to have um, prescribed burns. Like they, um, like we should, and like what we did historically, what Native Americans did, what farmers did. Um, you know, fire is a natural part of the landscape, and if you don't set fires sure. and let them burn in safe times, the fuel load builds up, and they become these out of control infernos. And that's a, right. the perfect metaphor for for so many of our institutions, I think, right now, where we've neglected them and sort of lived in the moment. And um, you know, like a CEO, which is basically our culture the framework of our culture is sort of the CEO looking at like the profit margin for the next quarter (laughs) instead of what will happen in 20 years. Because, yeah. Speaking of management and controlled burns, I've thought about that during all of the civic unrest this summer. I'm I'm not in any way condoning violence, but for how many years have we seen incidents that ought to trouble us that we have dealt with in the moment and then not made a permanent change about so I can certainly understand a building sense of rage mm-hmm. within our culture. Yeah, I can. Yeah. And in several different areas and in several different issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we've been putting things off. Yeah, a long just time. on so many things. Like I have, <laughs> I hate to make it all about me and my fire area and all that stuff, but, but we have a house that's 27 years old. And um, this year, in addition to everything that's going on, everything in our house is breaking because people, oh. things are only designed to last for 25 years now. And, uh, and and my talk about my grandfather again. I mean, the house that my um, grandmother lived in until she died was the house that she was born in that my grandfather built, oh. and and it, you could walk up the stairs oh, without a floorboard creaking, you know. Mm-hmm. And now we have these like tin, like everything is just this tiny slip of metal that lasts for twenty yeah. years and then collapses. And I think that's the. Um, that's the, the real problem on every, on every level that we're facing. And so looking back to the past where people um, look to the future instead of just in the moment is just such an important thing. Um, so, Well, I certainly, you're singing my song there because my house is 80. It was built in 1940 and I moved in 22, going on 23 years ago. So the appliances, the roof that I replaced, the furnace and the air conditioning... <laughs> Yeah. It's a lovely shell. It's it's all hand-laid plaster with lath underneath. I mean, it's solid, but uh, I keep thinking I'm going to be living in a lovely ruin one of these days. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my uh, my grandmother's house, um, my grandfather ordered it from a Sears catalog, then oh, built a okay. shack in the yeah. backyard, and then built mm-hmm. it, um, you know, in... in um, I guess that was my great grandfather. Sorry, I guess I got the details. Those were well designed yeah, yeah. houses. We've got a bunch of them in the small town near here where I grew mm-hmm. up. Yeah, but, uh, they were they're nicely laid out, nicely. Yeah, designed. yeah, it's a great house. The, the bones, like that good bones poem, um, it's so true. But um, do you want to read another another poem from the book? Sure. Uh, my grandparents' house. Speaking of houses, is on an island in the Detroit River. In what page? Which is just it's on page ten or nineteen. Excuse me and uh, crossing to Fox Island. There are some small subsidiary islands around a larger island called Grozeal, which has a population of about, what, 10 to 12,000. I taught there for many years. And uh, the house was on a, a rise overlooking the water, and just off across a shallow channel 
was a small island, Fox Island, where there was a cabin. And I guess there was some hunting on it, but quite honestly, Fox Island is about the size of, uh, uh, it, you could fit it in a football field now. Uh, it's small. It's just, it's a landmark in the, in the flat plain of the water. But the fun came, uh, aside from boating in the summer, is that in the winter, sometimes it would get so cold that the Detroit River would freeze over enough to allow us to walk across to Fox Island, which was a 20-minute walk. It, uh, maybe three quarters of a mile, if you've got a child with you, as I was. So this is called Crossing to Fox Island. Uh, this has turned out, this is the one that won the Robert Frost Award, and I've had the weird experience. This is the single from the album, as it were. This is the one poem that gets all the attention from this book. So I'll read you the A-side. <laughs> Crossing to Fox Island. Every act is first an act of faith. One foot slowly lowered to the ice, and then the other foot, and then we stand above the, the vault the river winters under. And look across the flat, unreal expanse, imagination telling us we cannot stand where water ought to be, where water is beneath us. Then we start across the ice. Some patches, dark and flat, are panes of glass like windows into night beneath our feet, where trapped air scatters from our steps, reminding us that we are more like stones than shadows, howsoever lightly we might cross above the shuttered flow and tread the temporary span from land to island. Snow abrades the most of it, bright crusty scabs that crumble underfoot and leave us gasping, stumbling in the space below the space we occupied, reminded of the weight above the depths below. One inch will hold a walker if he's light, and two a group, and three or four a car. We counted out the thickness as we dressed, and counted as we walk across it now, and on to land again, the island's crested beach, the trees that rise among the drifts, and looking back, we measure out the distance, trace our tracks, where every act of faith was first an act. That's a great ending. Thank you. You know, I remember sitting here one morning thinking, do I dare rewrite the first lines? Is that too stagey a way to bring it home? I mean, should I, is it too predictable, right? And it, I thought it might be a little too either showy or formulaic, but... Once you live with a draft for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a long enough poem that you kind of forget. Like, I think um, repeating it like that works when there's enough of a delay. And I have a terrible memory, which um, helps me in, in that regard. But um, but it works really well to say, oh, yeah, you know, I love that feeling at the end of a poem. Um, one of the things that, that you can't help notice from your book is that you write almost entirely or maybe entirely formal poetry. Uh, everything is metered, mostly rhyme, sometimes slant rhyme, but mostly true rhyme even. Um, what What is it that draws you to formal poems as opposed to free verse? Um, you know, what is it about that, well, that that works? Before I answer that, let me make a book recommendation. If you've never read uh, Stephen Fry's The Funs in How You Say a Thing, yeah, mm -hmm. Stephen Fry, the British comedian, brilliant man. It's a wonderful book on poetic form. And don't skip the end notes. They're some of the funniest things. I laughed aloud 
reading alone as I dug into the end notes at the end and was delightedly surprised. So the title is The Funds in How You Say a Thing. Uh, about form, I'm, I'm very much interested in form, and we all look at the poetic landscape around us, and I wish there was more form in it. I wish that we viewed ourselves as craftsmen, as poets, uh, a little more often, because I think form, if we think, and I'm speaking as an English teacher here too now, if we organize words with grammar, if we organize phrases and define the function of language grammatically, I think we define the function of poetry formally, that form is a grammar of thought, hmm. and that's... Uh, uh, that's the attraction for me, uh, because I've taught iambic pentameter so very many times. One of my parlor tricks is when a student tells me that it's impossible to write a sonnet, I'll recite a sonnet back in response. <laughs> mm -hmm. You understand it's not that hard, you see, right? Da -dun -da -dun -da -dun -da -dun -da -da. And in reading Crossing to Fox Island just now, every act is first an act of faith is... Um, it's a trochaic pentameter, one foot slowly lowered to the ice. The thing I love about form is that it forces you to turn the ideas around and to find the words. And if you're good at what you're doing, not just the words, but the best words, to fit the form, to make the puzzle latch. It's that satisfaction of having a, like a jigsaw puzzle in front of you and you feel the piece chuck into place, fit into place, you know, when it, when it comes. And put rhyme against that, which is my torturing my students. Rhyme organizes things vertically. Meter organizes things horizontally along the line. And that, uh, that I think, is a very important thing. Uh, I do wish that form were a little more popular mm -hmm. because we have a rich history of form. Uh, triolets and rondos and uh, uh, things you almost never see anymore. And you, you read a pantoum earlier, which is wonderful. Uh, but I think that the more you work in form, the better your free verse becomes. Because you, you, you sharpen yourself on form. That it is hard, and it, it's the difficulty, it's the great work of wrestling a draft into place. Uh, and I think that's uh, it, it benefits the writer to do it. Do you think, um, I've always felt that... Um Every poet, it seems to me, talking to them over the years, and I, I've done interviews with 100-plus poets, um, and, and everybody seems to find a way to make poetry a kind of meditation. I think that seems to be central to everything. There's this kind of, like, I lose myself in the moment, like uh, Michael Jordan, you know, hitting all the three-pointers, kind of feeling that in-the-zone place. And I always feel like form is one way that certain poets find how to get in that place where they can surprise themselves and sort of turn off their consciousness and, and let things sort of happen spontaneously. Um, so I'm, I've always trying to find for uh, people who um, disagree with that statement. Do, would you agree with that? Or is it, it's sort of the, you know, and, and the, the um, editing too. A lot of people find that like tinkering with poems, like you totally lose your sense of time and three hours go by and you don't even know it. And there's just sort of like this focus, which is um, really I don't know, it's like being in the moment, like walking the line between border and chaos, or however you want to describe it, um, is a really... Well, I think yeah. the, the exteriority of form mm -hmm. is a great thing, because you already have a template 
that you have to meditate on at some point and 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 fit your thoughts to. So I think that tends to solve the what am I going to say next pressure word by word as you're writing. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I say the next line? Well, you have to say it in a certain way, right? And it may not at first be the best way, but again, that's what revision is for. Uh, but yeah, I do believe that, that form is uh, as a pre-existing condition, uh, that it does, uh, it does pull you away from... Well, all form is public. That, that's an important point. We share forms, right? We have a, a shared vocabulary. We all know what a sonnet is. Uh, but uh, to be able to sit down and say, well, I'm going to work myself into this means that you have to enter a room on your own and, and fill it up, right? I mean, that uh, that's, <laughs> I just flashed on the idea that stanza is the Italian word for room. Oh, yeah, you're right. But, uh, yeah. but that, I think that's an important thing that we, uh, if you set up, if you're going to say this is going to be a ballad, it's going to rhyme A-B-A-X, it's going to be in four lines, it's going to tell a story, then that excludes most of the material that you weren't going to write about. Um, it closes the door and it leaves you to, to, to focus, to function meditatively, as you put mm-hmm. it. And, and how, um, your, your revision process, do you go through a lot of drafts? I, th- I imagine that formal poets go through many more drafts than, um, than uh, non-formal poets do. Is that, is that your experience? You know, as you say that, I'm thinking to myself, I used to go through a lot of drafts. And now I just change the words on the screen. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Right? And do we ever really stop? Because now that we're working on, I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time when it was common knowledge or a common saying that poets did not start with a typewriter, mm-hmm. that you started oh, handwriting yeah. and then you took it to the Remington, right? But that was the sign that you were more or less finished because you weren't going to redraft unless an editor saw your work and penciled it up, mm-hmm. right? And what a gift we have in the plasticity of a word processor. Uh, so, yes, I'm constantly making changes. Uh, I started writing this group of poems that are in the book uh, in 2006, the summer of 2006. I was up at the Interlochen Arts Camp um, in northern Michigan uh, teaching creative writing. And this is what I was doing in my spare time. And I don't think until, well, I had a a draft of the book, the whole manuscript in 2007, 2009. And then I went back in 2011 and I touched it up again. But I'm sure I've occasionally changed a word here or there. I think you never stop, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who was it who said that the works of art are only ever abandoned? They're not finished. Right. Yeah, I wish I could so, remember who it was. Um, somebody met a poet, uh, like a famous poet, like um, Robert Bly or someone, but I can't not remember who. And he was in a bookstore in San Francisco, um, adding a period that he wanted, you know, changing a comma to a period <laughs> in his own books in the bookstore. And he said, "Wait a minute, are you whoever it was? I can't remember who it was though." But um, like it literally, like with a pencil, being like. Like editing the book that had been published 20 years before because he didn't like that choice. <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting thing because if you work formally, you're always keeping your eye on the verb and the object. Because somewhere, I, I find this very easy for me to lose the structure of the sentence while pursuing the meter hmm. or looking for the rhyme. And how can I flip these phrases around in such a way that the rhyme comes in at the right point? Uh, but uh, 
that difference between a period and a comma, uh, that's life and death at some point. Or is, is there a dependent clause following you, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that's an important thing. And I often end up saying, now, wait a second. This is what this sentence started out to be. Where are the elements of it now that it's, you know, in a, in a set rhythm, mm -hmm. right? Well, do you want to read uh, another poem? Sure, sure. Uh, after my grandfather died, uh, we had a house. Uh, <laughs> it was part of the experience of his death is that his house remained unsold for a few years. It was a poor market for housing in this area. And uh, my parents have a place in Florida to which they retreat during the winter. So teaching nearby, I got to go and check on the house once a week. And that was a strange experience because I was walking through a house that was now empty, a house that every single corner, every shadow uh, held a memory. And a uh, matter of fact, I've got a poem specifically. I'm going to change poems if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I'm on page 57, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's called Walking Through the Empty House. And it's the last one in the collection because it leaves me alone in the empty house. Uh, walking Through the Empty House. In odd, ungainly middle age, I rush from room to hall to room, across the foyer, through the den, believing if I hurry soon, Arriving at the place where you were then, I'll find you there. Content to stage imaginary drama for a vacant house, mistaking speed for wizardry, I hold my breath and picture in unreasoned need the chair you occupied, your death irrelevant. Behind each door I seek you out, believing still I'll see you if I hurry, and feet pounding on linoleum, I barrel in a child again with you, expecting me to come a drumming through the house. I will not find you there. These are the spells grief bids us cast, the crazy made and crazy making bargains we transact, contrive to turn back age and through the doorframe hoping, seek what still was there when all was well. I name each place I travel through, Replace the furniture now gone and watch again what happened there. Stare through bare windows toward a lawn respiring in the summer air in memory. It's winter, though. Your house is dark and empty now and silent holds its breath. The heat clicks on. The radiators sigh and hush the drumming of my feet. I stop. I've failed. You've not arrived. I'm standing in an empty house. Yeah, excellent poem. That was the last poem. Thank, um, thank walking you. through the empty house from the very rich hours. Um, what is your experience, um, you know, as as a formal poet, you know, publishing in places? I the, the strange thing that I've always felt was very strange is that the number one complaint that we get from readers is that we don't publish more formal poetry. It happens all the time. Really? It really is. Like it, for, oh, I'm very heartened <laughs> to hear that. For, That's a great for thing. For 15 years. I, it might be because we aim for sort of more lay readers that aren't like in, in the MFA programs and all that. Um, but it's the number one thing I get. And then the number of, you know, the, the percentage in submissions is so low. 
And um, I wonder, and, and, and the poetry community um, for formal poetry seems very sort of insular in a similar way to um, the haiku community. It's sort of, it's not quite as closed off as haiku as far as poetry goes, but it, it's kind of similar in that there's certain little outlets that have, that focus on formal poetry. Um, and then what is your experience um, elsewhere? Do you ever get like letters saying, if only this didn't rhyme? <laughs> like, I uh, I wonder about Gosh. that, you know? Um, you know, it's such a rarity to get a comment back from an editor that has a specific on it mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, that's a big change these days, too. Like, I remember, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years ago, I would write little notes all the time. Everything was um, either just like pasting a thing into an email or I'm um, writing an actual letter. Um, and, uh, nowadays that's not the case. Um, but, but I remember when I was an undergraduate, um, one of my professors said like no rhyme in my class, <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> which, which, um, I don't know. I, I think maybe we're past that, that place, but no nets on the tennis court. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Like there was a, there was literally a no rhyme policy. I don't want to see, I don't want to uh-huh. see that. And I think that was like a nineties sort of, you know, mood, or something that mm-hmm. that I don't know. It always it, it always baffled me. Um, so, what has your, been your experience of trying to publish books and poems um, as a formal poet? I sometimes wonder if the form. I suppose the only way to say this is to blurt it right out: is lost on the reader. Hmm. If even in the best circumstances, if you've got a stack of fifty poems in front of you as an editor. And I'm trying to get a relaxed and colloquial feel and still make sure that it's, you know, iambic tetrameter or something like that, that if I succeed, it won't be obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That rhyme rhyme has to moon June soon. And I had a conversation with a friend recently where I mentioned that the purpose of rhyme is not to sound similar sounds. It's to miss similarity. So if you rhyme moon and june well that's that's low energy but if you rhyme player with guitar someone has to sit up and take notice right rhyme exists on the difference differences of similar sounding words rather than on their their coherences sonic coherence uh, but I, truly i don't have much experience specifically as a formal mm-hmm. puppet uh publishing you know i yes much of what i write and, and while I was working on this book and for a long time after, it was in iambic or a trochaic almost all the time. All of my notebooks have that beat running through them. But uh, I've had very few comments on form. But I will say this. One dedicated reader of Rattle saw the most recent one of mine you published mm-hmm. and saw the line where I was talking about things that don't quite work out and don't fit and I intentionally flubbed the meter in that line, and someone tweeted me their appreciation of it. Oh, that. interesting. <laughs> I want to shake that gentleman's hand. I really do. Someone caught exactly what I meant, and what a satisfaction. That was Laudamus, right, that had that? Yes. Do, right. do you have that handy? Do you want to read that so people can know what you're talking uh, about? No, I don't have it handy, but I can pull it up. Yeah, um, yeah. Why don't you do that? And while you're doing that, I'll just say... Um, um, I should say this like in the middle of the show occasionally, but I never do. Um, please do if you're watching and enjoying this conversation and these poems, click the like button um, and make sure you're subscribed and tell your friends to subscribe because that is how um, poetry is done. Um, well, that's how everything is done on the internet, and um, poetry is not immune from having to um, let the algorithms know that you care. So please do click the like button and share. Um, 
Let's see. Great. I, I got to find it too, actually. So I have to talk while typing. Okay. Um, I have it up on my screen. Okay, see, you're quicker than good. me because I was trying to talk. Okay. Well, so uh, that's all right. <laughs> okay. I'm just along for the ride here. You're you're running. The show. Okay. So this is Laudamus. Um, why don't you go ahead and read it? I'll put it up for everybody else. All right. Uh, Laudamus in Latin is "Let us give praise." Ah, okay. Right, and that uh, I give myself away as a Catholic school child, uh, but there we have it, Laudamus. So let us praise the incomplete, the half made up, the left undone, what's underbaked, what's scarce begun the set-aside, not yet concrete. Let's laud what's left unsaid or dropped, the barely finished, still to come, to be announced, to be revealed, still in production, uncongealed, and praise for all that, what's to do and what's ahead, the yet unplanned, the things we've always said we'd do and what we never thought we would. And what we never thought we could, ignoring what we knew we should and didn't, never found the time and left aside what we omitted. Here's to the things that didn't fit, that made no sense, that didn't rhyme or quite serve the meter. What we cast away, failed to commit. So praise the ones who let things lie, not bringing to completion all that seemed so necessary once and proved irrelevant in time. Yeah, that's great. And, and if you can rec recognize the uh, line where the meter was off, that's a great, great poem. And you know, the interesting thing about that poem is um, we talked, I've talked, we had conversations about these. Is it possible to write a poem with no images? And um, I think mm. you did it there. <laughs> um, I remember talking about it um, at, you know, at the meeting. Um, it's so hard to do because we're so image, you know, our brains are so image-based. Right that um, it's very rare for poem not to at least include one image. And um, I think at some point, though, it's there in the words. Mm -hmm. uh, because if I say what's half-baked, yeah. we have an image of yeah. something. Yeah, it's hard um, to, it's so hard to avoid. And there's some slight ones there. But as far, you know, we, um, I think maybe on a, a critique or something, someone asked about it, and I tried to think of poems. Um, you know, there's the, um, what was it, the Cavafy with a great yes and the great no? That's the only one I can come up with off right. the top of my head. Um, that you know, I once had a student try to tell or tell me that they were trying to write in a way that was purely their own. This was a, a very, how do I, very late adolescent, I'm going to forge in the smithy of my soul mm -hmm. the uncreated conscience of my race sort of feel. But he said, I'm trying to write in a, in a way that shows no other's influence. Yeah, yeah. And I just held back because I thought the language will influence <laughs> you. you. You don't receive your know, language, the, the 80s disco comment, language is a virus, right? And it infects things. It yeah, does. yeah. Well, that's always the sort of the sophomoric cop out. You know, the wise fool says, "I will not be influenced by reading other poets." But, um, but believing how that you are great enough to sustain it yourself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, how did you? We didn't really talk yet about how you got into poetry in the first place. Like, what drew you to poems? Was there a poem <sighs> you discovered that like lit the fire in you, or? Um, or was it your grandfather's love of the arts? What was it that, that made you a poet? It was my grandfather's love of the arts. It was the specifics of being read to as a child and then having things talked about where he might go back and say, and listen to that line, that sort of thing. Uh, 
I was very fortunate to be in a situation where I was encouraged uh, to express myself. Uh, there was never an artistic... I, I grew up... A lot of people look at a finished work of art and think I couldn't do that. And I was fool enough to think, I could try. And what? how do you get to be a good artist? Well, you spend time being a bad artist, right? And that's... I spent a lot of time being a bad artist. I happen to have the set of books that my high school used when I was 14 to 18, but I encountered them years later when I was teaching. They were sample copies in a storeroom, and they were about to be thrown out in a different school. And I said to the de department chair, these are books I loved. You know, may I, may I, is this, does no one want them? I want them. And so I'm not adverse in class, for instance, to walk over to the bookcase, pull down my old ninth grade anthology and uh, read Ozymandias or um, what is the Auden poem, um, Their Lonely Betters, uh, where he listens to the birds singing in his garden and ends with a phrase that I memorized at 14. Uh, he talks about all the things that animals aren't aware of and ends by saying, let them leave language to their lonely betters who count the days and long for certain letters. We too make noises when we laugh or weep. Words are for those with promises to keep. And oh, did that strike me mm -hmm. at, at 14. And then I probably went off and did something awkward and unusual, you know, more befitting a 14-year-old. But the dignity of it, the sheer stateliness of it, and the, the deep humanity uh, words are for those with promises to keep. The communication brings with it that idea that we we owe each other something in the exchange. Um, that struck me as a child. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm giving you a bunch of instances that point toward. That. No, I think you definitely are. You know, that reminds me of when when I was a kid. There, there was um, um, the snowman. I was uh, at the exact oh. same age. And looks back and gave gave gives a stare as Outcast Adam gave to Paradise. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I just um, I remember I, I had a job shoveling. That's also in my ninth grade book. <laughs> yeah, by the way. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So at fourteen, Sorry. I was shoveling snow and sort of reciting that to myself at five a.m. before school, and um, there was something about that that sort of triggered it for me. Um, do you want to read another poem? We have probably have time for like one poem, one question from the audience, and uh, then another poem, and then we got to end up. All right, uh, let, me, let me see what else I had dog-eared here. Okay, this is much better. Uh, the house stood empty for a few years. Let me round this out before it was sold. And wonderfully, it was sold to a couple that had small children. So they were going to raise a family in it. Uh, I happened to drive by a while ago, and the driveway is full of cars and a, a boat trailer and other things. And the house is being used, where when I last saw it, it was empty. It was a shell. Uh, but there was a pear tree in the backyard, and at one point we noticed, as the house sat empty, someone was taking the pears. Hmm. We have no idea, but they also left behind a tool for plucking fruit out of a tree, sort of a rake with a claw at the end of it. So pulling a couple things together, there's also a passage in the Confessions of St. Augustine 
about stealing pears. He berates himself for the sheer joy of mayhem when he steals a cart full of pears as a young man. And he talks about that as an example of, of his, his previous unreformed life. So this is the theft of the pears. We notice first the windfalls gone. No bees above the yellowing bellies in the grass. No hovering buzz above the dark late summer lawn. So the pears go, first from the ground below, and only one or two left, rotten, lingering, to show for the last night's storm that cast around the lawn the fruit and branches, leaves now curling in the heat. Then soon the lower branches have been culled, plucked bare to arm's reach height. We see the untouched fruit a crown above, a brighter, harder green among the tangle of the branches. Neighbors swear that they've seen no one come or go, but then we find the tool, a metal hoop for reaping, with a basket underneath to catch the fruit, and so at last we knew. If Augustine was right, the theft of pears is not a crime of greed, of hunger or necessity. Our thief considered hard, prepared ahead in easy steps, progressed from lawn to lower branches, then employed his reaper, reaching up to pick at last the ripest fruit. He stole for love of theft, because, methodically, he loved the act. He stole for love of theft. That's a great line. Um, let's see. Um, Brent Stoffer asks, this is a good question, um, just because we mentioned some older formal poets, but he, he says, um, what formal poets writing today do you admire? Uh, for me, I'd say A.E. Stallings and Kim Adonizio. Um, I like this sort of rough sort of gritty American style of uh, form mm -hmm. where it sort of has a lot of texture. I guess that's my, my favorite, maybe my favorite kind of poem, like uh, Kim Adonizio's The Sound. Um, like I'm familiar with her work, but you know, I want to turn that question on its side. It's less that I like poets mm -hmm. who are writing in form than I find certain poems that strike. Yeah. Me. Yeah. That's true too. That's, that's more often the case. I mean, it's, it's sort of like having taught now for 30 years, this music kids are listening to these days, right? And you leave the channel on in your car, and then all of a sudden there's one song that grabs you, right? Mm -hmm. So less uh, less any particular poet than specific things. And that's that's a helpless answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. I can't make a recommendation. <laughs> is, is, there, is there a poem you can recommend? A poem in the last oh. 10 years? I know that's hard to get down the spot. Then you get the mental block of trying to find it. But uh, Last 10 years? Yeah. There are things I commit to memory, um, and I want to say, is it Vera Pavlova? Is that the name of the poet I'm trying to think um, of? It sounds familiar, but... The, the first line is, if there was nothing to regret, and I could find that. Do we have time to... Uh, yeah, sure. Quick search, because yeah. it's a short poem, and it's less based on exterior form. Let's see. If there was nothing, I may have the, the name completely wrong. Well, the name is... Uh, if, oh, there we yeah. go. If there is something to desire is the name of the poem. And this is a little hard. I've got a web page up and it shows me the cover of the book. Yeah, I'm trying to find the poem. Um, oh, the, uh, poetry society, the, the poetry society has... Uh, Oh, you got! I have it up. Up. You can read it if you uh, have it too. 
Translated from the Russian. Yes, and this, you can see it was begging for translation. Uh, so here we have it, and this this is one of those tightrope acts where you, you know they're going to make it to the far side, but when they do, you're still surprised, mm. right? So if there is something to desire, there will be something to regret. If there is something to regret, there will be something to recall. If there is something to recall, there was nothing to regret. If there was nothing to regret, there was nothing to desire. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was an excellent poem. Yeah. And that was... Um, and, and how yeah. How much experience in, what, 10 lines? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's another poem with, with pretty much no imagery, too, which is um, just, they're rare, but it's possible. Um, well, we're pretty much out of time. Do you want to close out with one of your own poems to finish up the show? Okay, um, let's see. And it just happens I had one left out here. Um, on Fridays, I'm watching my great-nephew because my nephew and niece don't have a babysitter, and I am the unemployed uncle. <laughs> and that uh, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we finished off the day after he did uh, remote schooling last Friday uh, by sitting down and playing a, an interactive video game where he's seven. He's a great kid, uh, remarkable span of attention. But uh, what he didn't know is that, and he won't know for a long time, is just how wonderful it is to hold a child in your lap. Just just the feeling of that. Uh, when his uncle, when his father and, and his my other nephews got to be too big. I missed being able to pick them up. I really do. Uh, at one point uh, during a thunderstorm, my grandfather was worried that the boat down in the hoist on the river would be bothered by the agitation of the water, that it might jump its hoist, right, and damage the hoist on the boat. And I was a child and I pitched a fit. I wanted to go down and help him raise the electric hoist. You pressed a button way up high and the hoist, an, an engine lifted the hoist out of the water with all sorts of cable noise and, and machinery noise. And uh, so he carried me in the rain down to the well and picked me up so that I could uh, hold down the, the button that raises the hoist out of the water. It's called the boat hoist de profundis. De profundis is Latin for out of the depths, right? The cables stir the water underneath the dock, beneath our feet. Waves thud and slap and then erupt between the planks in sprays of drops and darkening foam dissolving back into the deep we stand above. He lifts me up to press the button, red and wide enough for two thumbs, his and mine, because I'm seven maybe and not strong enough, to hold it down and keep it down, which starts the motor, sets the winch to turn, and pulls the platform of the hoist above the waves. The boat first frets in its cradle, ducks and nods its bow at us, penned living in the well, moored in repining restlessness and urged to shoulder up against the wooden stiles by troubling heaves, then settles grounds itself secure, surrendering, now a member of the mechanism of the hoist. The torque of cables tunes them to the winch. They cough and bark and chime. The wind themselves, they wind themselves around the drum in tightening spirals as they pluck a rusting melody out of their depths and stresses. 
Strains and accidentals clang and echo as the metal fibers toll out every inch above the lowering stir. Their pitches bend, contracting to a span the burden of the boathouse and the well. The boat secure, he switches off the light and carries me back up the hill. The house shines out impassably above. All's well again, it says, above the glass dark swell. Gregory LaSalle, thanks so much for joining us on the Rattlecast. It's really Thank been a you. pleasure talking to you. I uh, hope you have a good well, It has been fun. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, have a good rest of your night. Thank you, you too. Yes, yeah, so that was Gregory LaSalle. Uh, with his newest book, The Very Rich Hours. Um, other books include The Whole of Him Collected. Uh, but you can find The Very Rich Hours here at thepoetrybox.com. And um, Gregory's website is um, glosell.com. That's G-L-O-S-E-L-L-E.com to find more of his work. Um, there's a lot of photo collections and things there, too. I was looking at earlier today. So check that out, glosell.com. Um, thanks for, for Gregory for joining us tonight. Um, now let's move on to the open mic portion of the show and we have to say goodbye to Gregory there. Goodbye, Gregory. Um, and flip over to the open line numbers. And apparently I've gone from San Bernardino to Los Angeles. A magic. That's the magic of Hollywood. Um, so if you, uh, wrote a poem about this week's prompt, which was, um, put it on screen for you really quick. This week's prompt was, uh, September is classical music month. Listen to a piece of classical music and let it inspire your poem. So if you did that this week and you have a poem ready for us, um, all you have to do is email it to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic, uh, M-I-C, at rattle.com. And then call in. We have a few people who um, have said they'd like to read already. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, five people so far. Um, so you can send a Skype message to me at rattlepoetry, all one word. Just send a chat message. I will reply when the time is right. Uh, if you'd like to call over phone, it's 818-850-7727. Uh, once again, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, just a few, like maybe three or four times, and then hang up, and I'll, it'll appear on my call list, and I will call you back at that number. Um, so feel free to go ahead and do that. Now, this week, I kind of mentioned it while talking to, to Greg. This this week has been brutal for us. Um you know, not only reading through and figuring out the Rattle Poetry Prize winner, which was um, the, a record, but everything we do at Rattle is up by about 30% this year. So every sale, every submission to every, um, every you know, different category, um, including the contest, um, it's just everything is up 30%. Um, I'm not sure if it's because people like these Rattlecasts. Maybe you're listening more regularly and then writing more regularly and submitting, or maybe it's just the, it seems like it might be the pandemic because it's a great time for poetry to be when you're locked in. Um, but it actually started before the pandemic, so I don't know. But but everything is up thirty percent, and the the poetry contest was just overwhelming trying to get through all these poems. And then when he got it down to narrowed down to like two hundred, uh, man, picking the best poem out of two hundred is really hard too. Um, and then we we're having some major house issues, um, some home improvement catastrophes going on. Where uh, it'd be nice if we could win the Rattle Poetry Prize because that's about how much it's going to cost to fix this stuff. So we are not in the right mindset to write poems ourselves. Um, so neither Megan nor I wrote a poem for this week's prompt. And this is the first time we've ever not written one for the prompt. I'm sorry. But I do have a poem that's written after a piece of classical music um, in my book, American Fractal, here. So I thought I'd read that before we open up the open lines as everybody sort of lines up. Um, i got to find it, though. 
Okay, so this is a um, a classical piece that was written after um, um, Frost's poem, The Bending of Birches, um, by a professor at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester. And I had a... Um, um, I had an assignment when I was working for the school newspaper at the University of Rochester to cover a recital at the Eastman School. And, um, and, and someone performed this piece, which was about Frost's poem, The Birches. Um, and I wrote this poem about my experience, um, f- you know, experiencing that piece of classical music. I was written for the cello. And here it is. This is The Bending of Birches after a string arrangement after Frost. The circles, the stage lights, the outline of a body of an old man outlined by a body by a spotlight, and one might call that light a halo, but it extends further, deeper, and think. It is written of the body, this buoyancy like wood, what floats is carried away. This man in the halo, call him God, call him Peter, he lifts his bow, tucks the cello between his legs like a lover, like a child to bed, and then his fingers on the strings. One might call them worn or weathered, say their movements speak through dull arcs, white stumps drop taut from the earth. One might say whole or holy or confessional. One might say, I knew a boy once who hung himself in his mother's attic, that this boy so quiet in school one day became an empty desk, became a space to be filled, and maybe he still appears to me in dreams. Can you say that much? And maybe I ask him how it felt if he was plucked up by God like a sharp note, or if the world just fades out untouched, if it blends smoothly into whatever might come next, and now... Dust motes alive in track lighting, the bounce of the bow, the whine of horsehair transmuted electronically, the cellist thinks to himself a line from the poem, thinks to himself, I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree, the mind a private memoir, dark space, the old man bending the notes, bending his spine, pulling the audience in, he thinks to himself, one could do worse than be a swinger of birches, he thinks worse than the lilting of leaves, reverberation, folding hands pressed together, worse than a four-foot drop, the latter blood-red face bloated for sleep, and the way he moves, my god, the way that old man moves as if he were the air and the notes he flung from his grip were the only solid things, everything else swirling, fluttering. So there's my poem. Um, kind of, a, it fits the prompt, although I wrote it, you know, 15 years ago or something from my book American Fractal. Um, and that'll fill up some time anyway. I'm sorry that we didn't write anything original this week. Um, but it is what it is. Next week we'll both be back on point. Um, so hopefully now let's see what you have for this week um let's see who called in first we have sally dunn let's call up sally oh and i should say before um we do it i have an auto library that i'm allowed to play for copyright reasons so if your po if your song hello hey sally how you doing tonight doing okay um hang on um, one second I'm, I'm just explained to everybody and so i might as well explain to you too if you're um if your poem was written after a song that is in this free, licensed, royalty-free library I have, I could actually play it like quietly in the background while you, um, while you read your poem. Um, so let me know, everybody who calls in and shares a poem, what poem or what, what classical music piece it's written after. And I'll try to find it. So what, what classical music piece um, did you write this after, Sally? Well, I actually didn't write it after a classical piece. Oh, okay. Um, but I did write it as a direct response to your prompt. Interesting. Um, matter of fact, um, right after the show last week, you know, I looked at the prompt and this poem just sort of jumped out of me. And uh, so it's, it's directly response to the prompt, but not, not, by, not inspired by a piece of classical music. Okay, sounds good to me. Well, that, they didn't understand I also loved him. Is that right? Yeah. 
Perfect. Okay. Well, well, we'll start out with a different take on it. Let's go. Um, here we go. Go ahead. Okay. They didn't understand. I also loved him. Of course, September would be classical music month. As if there weren't already too many things wrong with September and classical music. He loved classical music. It grates on my ears. He was born in September. He murdered himself in September. I sat through hours of classical music at his wake in September. Everyone loved him, the music, and September, and made sure I knew it. Oh, that's a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sally. Yeah, that the repetition of the September and then breaking that, and um, powerful piece. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Have yeah, a good night. You too. Okay, let's, who is next? Um, Brent's got a classical music poem. Let's go, Brent. Hey, Brent, how are you doing tonight? I am doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, let me see. So your poem was about um, Van Geverev's Hungarian Dance Number no. 5. Let me see if I can find that before. Um, do you want to say anything oh, about I, it? You're, fro you're frozen up on me. Oh, I'm frozen up? I think it's just our connection. Um, you're kind of choppy, too. It'll buffer in a second. There. You better now? Okay. Okay. So do you yeah, want to say anything about what you wrote about? Oh, yeah. Um, the, 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 the song, or the piece, is uh, Brahms's Hungarian Dance Number no. 5, which uh, might be on there. Okay, let me look. It's old me. enough to be on there. Yeah, all I have is Brahms' lullaby, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Okay, well, it is a... Uh, it's a fast... It's it's based on a um, aroma a dancing mm -hmm. fiddle. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. I think maybe everybody at home's got it in their head. The problem is, um, if I if I put on music that's like copyrighted then i'll have to have ads yeah. throughout the whole show that's how it works they, oh, and then okay. and then the, and the yeah. person who owns the copyright gets the money which is fine but i hate ads popping up so i don't want to do it unless i can find a uh, royalty-free version but um anyway so so this is the is traveling show um i got it whenever you're ready go ahead yeah. okay traveling show lively longings jostle the carriage Fiddles skid throughout the evening. Our four wooden moons spin. They fly off the ground and then they slap back down again. We're racing to the next town with twirling skirts and torn white shirts, red rubies on pink toes, and shouts of roses. Excellent. That was Traveling Show by Brent Stoffer. Thanks so much, Brent, for sharing that. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, have a good night. Okay, let's get uh let's see let's see who is next. Um uh Richard Westheimer's next. Hey Richard, how you doing tonight? Hey Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um so you did Vivaldi, which is also not in the library. The funny thing is yeah. I looked up like two different different songs and I was like and they were both there, so I was like, Oh, this is a rich library. We'll be good. But maybe <laughs> maybe um maybe that doesn't work. Um, yeah, I, I did. I did a YouTube uh, link, but uh, yeah, I I'm wonder not... if I should. Maybe I should play like a snippet. I wonder if I played like eight seconds of it, if um, if they would be mad. 
I'm going to see what happens. I'm just kind of curious. So if there are ads later on the show in the archive, I apologize. But here comes um, Vivaldi. Um, how do you say this? La Cetra? Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's the part of the. You've probably heard of the, the Four Seasons, and this was that was the f- first four of a twelve concerto mm-hmm. um, piece that he put together that loosely translated as the contest between harmony and invention. And I just loved the the title. Uh, it just really um, uh, attracted me to it. Interesting. Uh, well, um. I don't think, let's see, I'll play a little snippet and we'll see if that works. You won't be able to hear it though. Okay. I can see you're here. Okay, we'll see what happens with uh, with Google's oh, okay. copyright strikes and stuff like that. Let's see. I'm curious. Podcast. We did one um, one time. We played a poem by a slam poet, um, just that we had on our website, and um, they they gave us like a copyright strike because like that was published as a slam CD on CD Baby or something. So um, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But let's hear your poem. This is uh, the contest between harmony and invention. Um, after Vivaldi's concerto, opus eight, number eight in D minor. A round table in a round room lit by moonlight in the umber hills above Oaxaca. A toffee brown Maya man who spoke no Spanish, his comleche lover, Maya too, who spoke no English. A French woman who cooked with cajillos her milk chocolate man who spoke no Mayan, and I, the gringo Wero, the only one who spoke no Vivaldi. The strains of La Cetra stirred a circle, speaking that moved from strings to speech, from Maya to me, monolingual, whispered the candlelight into shadows, transcended the conquest, lit these eyes that danced between harmony and invention plotted the next revolution. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, The Contest Between Harmony and Invention by Richard Westheimer. Thanks so much, Richard. That was great. Uh, thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah have a good night. Thanks. Okay. Um, let's see. So so now that we're all in, in for a penny, in for a pound, let's just do, if you if you send um, the poem, I'll just play it because... Um, <laughs> Alrighty, and you know the thing is that this is the definition of fair use. Like having a, a a snippet of music, and then your interpretation of it through a poem. There's nothing more fair use than that, um, especially something that's out of. Well, I guess the the recording that somebody made of the song itself is uh, copyrighted, but still, this is fair use. Um, anyway, Joey Stahl. Let's call up Joy and see what let's let's see what poem she had too. Oh, she has an American sentence. Let me see. It's ringing. Oh. Hey, Joy, how are you doing tonight? All right. Um, so you have an American sentence, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah. And um, let me try to find the actual music. First, I'll look, I'll look in the library I had. Oh, that's not right. All right. Hang on one second. So Everybody's got to bear with me. So so is there I anything you want to say? Yeah, I decided to write an American sentence because it's an American composer. Ah. And then kind of riffing on what I did with the paintings, 
uh, I had my students write American sentences about this same piece of music. Very cool. Well, let, we'll hear a snippet here. Um, here it comes. You can't hear it, but everybody at home can. And everybody, these stuff, people will remember this. Okay. So that was what we're working with here. And, and let's hear your, it's so short. Let's just hear it. Your American sentence. Go ahead. All right. Transcend after Fanfare for the Common Man by Aaron Copeland. Flourish together, for each of us has never been the common man. Excellent. Flourish together, for each of us has never been the common man. Thanks so much. That was Joy Stahl with an American sentence after Fanfare for the Common Man. Thanks, Joy. Thank you. Yeah, if you uh, if you don't know what an American sentence is, check out the um, um, summer issue of Rattle. We talked to Paul E. Nelson about um, American sentences, among many other things. He's been writing one since um, for the last how many years? Did he say twenty years. Every day, um, it's sort of his diary. And an American sentence is, is Ginsburg's take on the haiku, which is um, it's just a sentence that is um, seventeen syllables long. So that was uh, Joy's. American sentence. Let's call up um, Caitlin Buxbaum. You can include a link, so I can just click on that, and it'll play for people. Here we go. Let, let everybody listen to it for just okay. a second. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Okay, we got to stop it there, I think. Um, now, hopefully, I think I'm um, screwing up the audio because I have to double. I think there's an echo. I apologize to everybody at home as I try to juggle this. But um, so, so your poem was about that. Is there anything you want to say before you read it, Caitlin? Yeah, a couple things. So assuming you played the version that I linked you, um, I liked the just straight piano version a lot better than the orchestral versions of every song I listened mm. to. I just... I needed that to focus it, I think. Um, and I was originally going to do Claire de Lune, but that movie, that movie, that song has been used in so many movies. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized I couldn't write a, saw, a poem on a song that was too famous because then I'd already have a story in my head and I didn't want that. So um, I moved over a little bit and I was like, well, I don't know this one, but I like this composer. And so the poem named after the song arabesque is m actually more about him as a composer i still was listening to the song as i was writing it but um a lot about him and his artistic struggles which i'm really feeling right now <laughs> um and i wrote it in a french form that i hadn't tried before called a curiel and that was the last one i needed to write a poem in form using every letter of the alphabet. So I've written a poem in a form with A, B, C, etc. Mm. Um, so that's fun. And I used some lines from a poem that Rosemary Watola Traumer recently published. So without further ado, yeah, go. <laughs> I'll read it. Arabesque. This is what it's like to learn to trust, to live with one arm forward, one arm back, and feel marvelously stretched perilously opened from between by rosemary witola trummer 
It's only when we're in the hall, between what was and what is next, that any artist has the gall to put their talent to the test. In desperation, there we'll find how to compose our very best. A hungry soul and racing mind will put our talent to the test. Success, when floating out of reach, dispels all rationale and sense, without which comes the muse we seek, and puts our talent to the test. But as we let our fingers fly and profit from our bright unrest, we say goodbye to any high that put our talent to the test. So let us artists try to thrive in times when we feel less than blessed, for wealth and motivation hides in faith and drive put to the test. Excellent. What, what form is that? It's called a Kyriel, K-Y-R-I-E-L-L-E. Um, and yeah, if we had more time, I'd go through it, but you guys can look it <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, so. very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Caitlin. Always good to see you. Yeah, thanks for letting me talk. <laughs> good night. <laughs> good night. Okay, um, let's see. We have... I think we have one left. I think we have Gail Hemmen left. Um, let me say uh, one more time although I should be out of time pretty much. Um, if you'd like to call in, the phone number is 818-850-7727 or Skype me at Rattle Poetry, all one word on Skype. And um, we'll see. Let's see. I have a bunch of people emailed, but... Yeah, so a bunch of people aren't here, unfortunately. But we will call um, as the last caller, I think. Um, it's calling up Gail. Hi there. Good evening. Hey, Gail. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, thanks. Uh, how are you tonight, Tim? I'm good. Um, did you email me your poem and try to find it? Mm, uh, I didn't. I didn't know I was going to get to write one until tonight. Um, so ah. I just have the <laughs> the low tech uh, paper copy here with me. Okay, cool. Well, go ahead. And, and what song, you know, what was it written after? Well, I love classical music. I listen to a lot of it. Um, and this actually, I kind of, I have been, I have been writing, um, I, I, I love classical music, and then actually this was, I was thinking about a movie, and so I kind of went from classical music to film score, soundtrack, to a movie, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I won't sing for you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, whenever you're ready, just go ahead then. Okay, okay, um, this is movie template fitting over two black bodies. <clears throat> the two black boys playing movie are against this afternoon anyway bulletproof. On this late summer day, gangster falls and hero lives, 1910 or 2020, fair play. Two black boys playing on the street, acted out over and over again, summer 2020, much like 1910, delight jumping from old movie screens to entertain. After TV movies, theater exit into sudden day and the sheen, black boy on a sidewalk, toy gun clutched where he lay, smiling, just two children at play movie theater of day and yet they're still left wondering as they play why the white hero wins and the black hero is dead and back here again excellent thank you so uh, so so kind of <laughs> uh, thank you thank you for the opportunity to read tonight tim really a, a pleasure to hear everyone's poems um and to hear gregory tonight thank you yeah it always is thanks so much gail thank you good night good night Okay, I believe that... Oh, wait, we have this uh, 613 number. Let's do that. I don't know who that is, but let's see. We'll find out in a second. Hello? Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yes, thanks. And, and who am I talking to? This is Jill. 
This is Tamara. Ah, I Tamara thought it might Best. be Tamara. Okay, Tamara Best. Um, thanks. And you yeah, have... I'm up, in, I'm up in Canada. Ah, excellent. Always nice to hear people from the great wide north calling in. Um, so you have, um, I don't know how to say this, Ubi Caritas, is that right? Ubi Caritas. Caritas, okay. And what, what is that written after? It is um, Latin. Mm-hmm. So it is a, uh, a chant. Um, Oh, interesting. That I, I heard uh, a version of it um, on Facebook. So I sent you a link, the second email that I sent. Oh, let me find their second email then. Maybe I can do it for everybody. Let's see. Because there's... I only see... I only have one email, but I can I can Google really quick. I'll try to send it too. Caritas. I'm a little nervous, so shaky, but... <laughs> no problem. Okay, let's see if we find a... A video. This this might give us a copyright strike, but let's see. Oops, that's not good. Um, now I have to do an ad. Oh, yeah, I can't play this. There, I got to do a whole like big ad to do it. <laughs> so never mind. Let's just hear the poem. And mm-hmm. before I begin, I just think that um, there is some neat uh, themes coming through. Hmm. So um, this I wrote really at the last minute, and. Um, I'm glad that I sent it in. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. Let's hear it. It's on screen for everybody at home. All right. Ubi Caritas. 12,000 years of voices are flowing from four mouths. Electric power that I can feel crawling from fingertip to spine. 12,000 years of worship in preordained time, speaking truth even to my hardened heart. We are all speaking in tongues. 12,000 years of caritas, chanting down hate and rising instead as a song that resonates into my dream time. Do we speak of gifts? 12,000 years of lives sung into every note. Hallelujah. Et amor. I reply. Oh, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, A lot of refrains in these poems, I already noticed them. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that was uh, Tamara, 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 Tamara. Um, it's funny. It's Tamara. And Tamara. my very first poem I wrote was, uh, my name is Tamara, and I'd like to take pictures with my camera. And I still use that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, I had, there were actually two girls in my high school with that name, and they pronounced it differently. So um, I know, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the, I, I don't know which one's more common. Um, anyway, thanks so much for joining us. Um, um, always appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, so that was uh, that was the Rattlecast for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, now, next week's prompt is going to be... Um, here it is. This is... So before we do next week's prompt, let me double-check to make sure we don't have any calls that I miss. I hate when I miss people. Okay, we're good to go. So next week's prompt is going to be... And I promise that both me and Megan will write poems. Um, this is... Write a poem. Wait a minute. Let's see. Okay. Write a poem from the point of view of an animal. That's next week's prompt. Write a poem from the point of view of an animal. And um, so that's next week's prompt. And next week's guest is going to be uh, Taylor Molly. That's Rattlecast number 59. His newest book out is Late Father. He's a um, really renowned, world-renowned slam poet. Um, One of the most viral poems ever written uh, from around 2000. It was a poem that we published in, in Rattle, um, What Teachers Make. 
he um, has a whole book about how important it is to be a teacher. He was a teacher for a long time. And um, so a teacher, slam poet, and uh, winner of the, what year might it have been, 2016 Rattle Chaplet Prize, I think, for his book, The Wedding Stone. Uh, that's Taylor Molly, next Tuesday, September 22nd, 9 p.m. Eastern. And the prompt, once again, is write a poem from the point of view of an animal. I hope to see you then with a the poem, and hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Good night.